it was a few years ago um, that I struck up a sort of friendly correspondence with a campaigning journalist who was writing in national newspapers at the time. I liked much of what he wrote, and um, uh, from time to time he would um, make reference to uh, his interest in Christianity. And I, I wrote to him uh, to correct him a little bit about some things that he um, uh, had misunderstood about uh, Christianity. And to be honest, to my surprise initially, he wrote back, extremely appreciative, and we started a dialogue that lasted over a number of, of months. He was very open and very responsive to what I was saying to him. Then one day he wrote an article about an organization called the Silver Ring Thing. The Silver Ring Thing still exists. It gets less publicity today. It's mainly an American movement to encourage young people to save um, uh, sexual relationships until they are married. And he wrote wrote a a light-hearted article encouraging his generation, which is actually my generation as well, we're about the same age, encouraging our generation, to keep flying the flag of the sexual revolution, as he put it. Um, He wrote, lock up your daughters against these zealots of the silver ring. Uh, He quoted from UNESCO research, which suggested that that actually abstinence um, was uh, a waste of time, advocating abstinence, that it was sexual education that uh, the world needed. So I decided actually to go to the relevant UNESCO um, articles, and I discovered that actually he'd been very selective in how he had um, uh, reported them. Indeed, they said that one of their primary goals in the world to improve the sexual health of young people was to delay the age at which young people first had sex. And the silver ring thing, you may be aware, has had relatively mixed results. But in one area, it has been very successful. It has delayed the age of their first sexual relationships. So I wrote to him, and I pointed that out. He never replied. And he's never replied to anything since. I think that little story touches on a number of characteristics of our culture when it comes to sex. One is that sex is a big issue. Our culture is obsessed with sex. We can talk about most things calmly. Even often, we can talk about religion calmly. But sex, sex is totemic for our culture. You don't knock the sexual revolution. It's often uh, uh, Christians who are accused of being sexually obsessed at the expense of other moral issues like greed and violence. And, And sometimes that is true, I think. But to be honest, I'm convinced that Christians are led by the world in that. I noticed, for instance, just this week, the BBC News website that I was looking at for various things have three out of the previous five days, the top most read article on the BBC News website had been um, a news item about sex of some kind or other. The BBC writes pretty balancedly about all sorts of different things, but that's not the way people read. Today, the top article is the newspaper magnate Eddie Shah 
saying that underage girls might be to blame for their own sexual abuse. Another thing about this that our culture is riddled with, and uh, frankly that journalist and so many other things since demonstrated, is that there are enormous inconsistencies and ironies and even sexual, uh, even sexual anxiety in our culture, despite the fact that we, we, we claim otherwise. You can feel that in my, uh, 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 in my generation as, as aged TV icons whom I and millions of others when they were children adored have been exposed as nasty sexual predators, Jimmy Savile leading the way. And you can feel my generation saying, what what was going wrong behind the scenes? You can feel it as well, more recently, as the the horrendous revelations uh, about East Oxford unfolded in the Bullfinch trial. And it became clear, actually that a good proportion of those who were, who were caring for those um, uh, young girls were well aware that they were sexually active. They just reported that they felt that these girls were simply making lifestyle choices. It's as if our culture has sort of let a genie out of the bottle and suddenly we've discovered that this genie is granting the wishes on some very nasty people and we simply can't get the genie back in again. And I think the febrile nature of the debate is not going to cool down anytime soon. Christians who want to stand for something different are not going to find it easy. Not least, actually, as a pastor, I am deeply aware today that the majority of professing Christians have been affected by this sexual revolution one way or another. This morning, I'm actually going to say some very conventional things, some things that... To be honest, I don't think anyone will be remotely surprised about. I'm going to call you to stand firm for the sexual ethics of the Bible, the sexual ethics that the Bible has been propounding for at least the last few few years. But I know that it touches nerves here too. I know that some of us are the victims of the sexual revolution. I know that many of us, indeed the statistics suggest probably the majority, one way or another, have been sucked into that culture that we live in today. And there will be some people here who feel deeply guilty about that. There will be some people here who, to be honest, don't have as much sense of guilt and regret as they should do. And I'm deeply conscious that like the campaigning um, journalist that I spoke to, people will listen to all sorts of things. But on this one, sometimes one way or another, they shut down. I want to appeal to you not to do that. You're going to hear in in Proverbs 5 a number of times, uh, Proverbs saying, listen, listen. Or Or the person saying, if only I had listened. We need to be people who are prepared 
not once, but once and again, frankly, to listen to what the Bible has to say. Wisdom is all about telling it as it is about the world. God's world. But it's very, very earthy and very, very real. Sometimes it's, it's telling you about things that in, in, on the surface are maybe sort of mutually contradictory and incompatible. And as, as Dan Steele was saying a number of weeks ago, you have, to, you have to do a bit of scuba diving and reflecting to get to the heart of what the, the, the books of wisdom are talking about. Sometimes the, the way the world works is not immediately obvious. And as Dan, uh, Daniel Blanche was saying, we have to, um, as uh, Proverbs 3 said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding because this is God's world and he orders it in a mysterious way. And the fundamental call of all wisdom is to trust God, to have faith. But, but this, the, this morning we're just going to see Proverbs, just in a little way, telling it as it is when it comes to the sexual revolution. This is an ancient word to a very modern topic. And chapter 5 functions as a, as a sandwich in many ways. Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5 um, introduce wisdom, this wisdom about sex. Verses 20, 21 to 23 conclude it, both of them using some key phrases like life and death and so on to, to summarise what he wants to say. And then we'll see there are sort of two bits of meat. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a ham and mozzarella um, as sandwich. It's got two bits of meat in the, uh, in the middle. But let's look at the, uh, the bread, the bread and butter on the outside. Um, the sexual revolution, says the, uh, the, the writer of Proverbs, the sexual revolution is characterized by irony and contradiction. Irony in speech for instance, verse 3, the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Let me just say for a moment, this is gendered, um, but, but I don't particularly want you, you to read it as, uh, as gendered. It, it, it's, um, it simplifies it and makes it straightforward to, uh, to use gendered language here. But when I have used gendered language in the past, I have had plenty of women come up to me, for instance, and say, no, I suffer from lust too. So, so um, um, adapt the gender in your own mind as you, as you see it. But, but I'm going to stick with the gendered language that, the, that Proverbs uses here. And look at the ironies. Now, lips which drip the honey of sweet words. But in the end, produce bitter, bitterness, bitter as gall. Lips which are, verse 3, sm- produce speech that's smoother than oil. But in the end, which wound and kill like a double-edged sword. I mean, this, this, this could summarize so many aspects of our modern world on sex. It could summarize the whole porn industry. 
It presents an imaginary world of love and sexual delight, but as uh, numerous documentaries have shown us, in reality it is a dark morass of abused women and unscrupulous, money-obsessed predators. It's the story of so many relationships which, which, uh, which became sexual, which might, to be honest, have been a wonderful long-term friendship, but, they, but, but they, um, they embarked on a sexual relationship. They were enticed by the sweet smoothness of sex, and it resulted in only bitterness and hurt, and now they can't be in the same room. It's the grand narrative of my generation, which people just can't process. How on earth did the wonderful call in the 1960s to make love, not war, produce um, uh, just a couple of generations, a population in which 50% of all children are not living, uh, or soon will not be living with both their natural parents, a situation which is proven statistically to harm them in almost every area, from education to health to emotional well-being, and most ominously to their ability to produce themselves a long-term stable relationship so that now people are more at war than they ever were but it started with make love not war there's irony deep irony deep contradictions at the level of speech and slogans and of actions as well verse 5 Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to to her way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. She heads straight towards death, not thinking about life, he says. But but the particular irony here is her lifestyle, um, it says, is all about wandering, aimlessly indeed, but if only she could see it, she's, she's heading in a straight line for the grave. People no longer have a clear uh, framework which gives some direction to their lives. They're told just to do what comes naturally, to, to follow their instincts. They fall in and out of love and they think that that means a complete change of direction and relationship. You know, when I walk the dog, she behaves like that. She sniffs around, she stops, she explores. It's lovely to watch, and she's happy for a moment. But actually, if she did not have me to look after her, frankly, she would soon starve. And as happened to her, she wandered up onto the road on the Ifley Road and got knocked down and nearly killed. That is what happens to aimless wanderers. But there it is, says Proverbs 5. Simply wander aimlessly. Angelina Jolie, who's been married twice and is on her third substantial relationship, or is it, no, it's her fourth, I think, um, uh, has had her marriages characterized by the most intense expressions of commitment to the man. And then 
has gone on record to say, I just changed. And so we moved on. Morass of irony, contradiction. And uh, verses 21 to 23 explore not so much irony and contradiction, but, but three different perspectives on what is going on there in this world that we live in, the world of the sexual revolution. First of all, says verse 21, God is still in control. Verse 21, your ways are in full view of the Lord. He examines all your path. The, the, uh, in verse 6, the wayward person gave no thought to her ways. It's the, the gave no thought is the same word. But God is absolutely alert. We never escape the eye of God, no matter how vigorously we might uh, deny him. This is God's world. We cannot cock a snook at God. God will not be mocked. God has ordained his world in a certain way. And those who, those who try to overthrow that will never escape the eye of God. This world is controlled by God. This world is controlled, though, by the sort of inevitable Newtonian cause and effect that is built into the universe. Notice verse 22, evil deeds take center stage. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. So a second perspective on this, on this world is that there are inevitable consequences. You don't live a life of unfaithfulness to others and expect to re- receive faithfulness from them. You don't live a life of fantasy and expect to be successful in the real world. Those are absolute contradictions, and this world will not tolerate such contradictions. And then a third perspective on where the final control is. God is in control, verse 21. The, the, the inevitable consequences of, our, uh, of, of uh, our actions are in control. Actually, and we are in control. We are responsible. A lack of discipline, they will die led astray by their own great folly. We never lose that response, that personal responsibility for our own actions. Three agents. Three agents which control this world as unstoppably and deterministically as any equation in physics. except for the God who is full of grace, except for the God who gave the ability of people to turn around, to listen and to respond, except for the God who miraculously controls those laws of the universe and can break them if he wants That is why it is uniquely valuable to be here listening to these things. Because here, the wisdom of Proverbs 
is relativized with the deeper wisdom of God. If you're, if you're someone here who just senses and feels those ironies and contradictions, those, that you, if you're aware that your life up to now has not been as it should be, if you feel drawn by the inevitable consequences of actions, by, 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 by your own folly, and even if you feel <coughs> under the sovereign hand of God, well, let me say to be under the sovereign hand of God is to be, to be able to be set free from those things. You can live differently. Listen to my words, says Proverbs. Listen to my words. Listen to my words. You can break free of these things by the power of God. The meat in the middle of the sandwich then is designed to give you a heart that wants to do that. And so I want to, just for a few minutes, try to, to, to bring out the imagery of the centre of Proverbs 5. And I, w- I want to encourage you to be someone who prays, please, God, let me see this world for the way that it is. Let me see these things with clarity. Let me see and help me to change. The first part of the sandwich, sex, uh, 7 to 14, um, is about the consequences of sexual folly. Then the second part is going to be the joys of sexual continence. Verses 7 to 14 then. The consequences of sexual folly. And you could sum those verses up by saying they are sexual folly leads to loss and regret. That is where you are heading if you are part of the sexual revolution. Loss... Um, He says, of honour and dignity. Listen, my sons, listen to me, verse 7. Don't turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Don't go near the door of her house, the adulteress, lest you lose your honour to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. How many stories in the press can warn you of that? How many do we need? I mean, you could, you could tough it out, perhaps, like Max Mosley, when he was cons- discovered having sex parties, and he decided to turn the newspaper revelation into a, into a campaign for the right to privacy. You could tough it out if you wanted. You could, like Dominic Strauss-Kahn, protest that you were entrapped by a maid who walked into your room and you were having sex with her within six minutes. You could try and claim you were an innocent person entrapped. You could, like Silvio Berlusconi, claim that your activities were just entirely innocent, but you won't succeed. Wisdom says you will be found out and you will lose honour and dignity. And who knows how much more. That is the way it goes. Even Jimmy Savile, who managed to protect himself from the 
revolution, uh, the revelations in his uh, in his lifetime. Frankly, you saw the way that it had destroyed him and diminished him. So the only people who didn't know him really respected him. And then his memory has been utterly besmirched. A number of years ago, the director of public prosecutions, as was then, was found curb crawling in King's Cross. He uh, resigned and his wife bravely protested that she would stick by him. But within a couple of years, she had left him and then she committed suicide. Keep to a path far from her, lest you lose your honour to others, your dignity to one who is cruel. Loss of dignity and reputation, frankly, loss of wealth too. Verse 10, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. It is a simple fact that people who, who form a lifelong marriage are on average far, far richer. Actually, and their kids who grew up in a stable environment tend to be richer. Divorce costs not only the acute costs, but actually... Um, the ramifications in the family are enormous. I was talking to a man recently who's middle class and, and um, uh, well-educated, and um, uh, frankly, he's remarkably poor considering his age and his status in society. And, and then he revealed that he'd lost his money through repeated failures in relationships. So that now when he should be well-established... He actually is struggling to find somewhere to rent. Loss of dignity, loss of wealth, and regret that builds up towards the end of your life. Verse 11, at the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. Happiness in life is not achieved by running into the sweet shop and grabbing everything that you can lay your hands on in the first moment that you're there. We know that. Kids that do that end up obese couch potatoes. Happiness is built and forged over years and decades of making healthy choices. And, you know, we could embark on life with the bravado of Douglas Coupland, who said that he wants to live hard, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. But I tell you, even Pete Townsend no longer hopes he dies before he gets old. Because he's got old. There is regret at the end of life that comes from that kind of lifestyle. Regret that we did not listen. Do you hear that? You will say, verse 12, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. I was soon in serious trouble. Here's that call. Listen, I'm not expecting people to walk out here living perfect, um, sexually pure 
lives from now on. The Bible does not expect that. Remember Jesus, when faced with a woman caught in adultery, said to the baying crowd, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, and not a stone was cast. Jesus knew that there will not be a single perfectly pure person, either with him or here. What Proverbs says is listen and listen again and heed correction and let the Bible redirect you and let the Bible stop you wandering off into the gross excesses of that. Be a person who constantly is turning back, constantly seeking the Lord's forgiveness, constantly moving away from those dangerous situations. And though you will not be perfectly pure, you will be safe. Because then God will see you and he will keep you even in your fallenness and brokenness and tendency to stray. The regrets of old age are how I did not listen. How awful if one day you're sitting and you look back to that day in August when you sat on that hot day and what you were thinking about is when's he going to stop going on about this? Rather than saying, how I must listen. All that I've said so far, frankly, applies to every human being, but there's something acute for Christians at the end of verse 14. I was soon in trouble, in serious trouble, in the assembly of God's people. If you're a Christian here today, you enjoy enormous privileges. I couldn't begin to list them for you. Apart from the eternal benefits that you enjoy, the benefits of simply being amongst God's people are absolutely enormous to you. But we cannot enjoy that. Either the future promise or indeed the present experience of being belonging to God's people if we are unrepentantly in rebellion against God on this. You may be keeping it quiet at the moment, but as he says, he was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Our sins will find us out. The fact that we have sinned is not the issue. It is whether we are penitent, which keeps us in the security of knowing we have an eternal destiny and joy ahead of us. And in the security of enjoying all the good things that come from belonging to God's people. There's the first half of the filling of the sandwich then. And it's hard-hitting, and it's incredibly relevant. The consequences of sexual rebellion 
are the same today as they were 3,000 years ago when this was written. And it is written all over our culture. Believe him. But then he talks about the joys of sexual continence, as I've put it in, verses 15 to 20. And we must end here by looking at that, because actually we are influenced but more by what we are attracted to than what we're frightened of, frankly. The Bible knows that from beginning to end. It presents us with both, but it particularly presents us with the attractiveness of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. Here we are in the area of sex and marriage then. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. The image here that he's using is of a Middle Eastern home. Judy and I and the family came across um, uh, this, first of all, when we were in Granada in, in southern Spain, which is, was very influenced by the Moors, um, the um, Muslim peoples from, from, from North Africa. And uh, uh, the, this, the kind of house that is found in Granada is found actually all over North Africa and the, uh, and the Middle East and has been for thousands of years. This is the picture that you have. If you see a Middle Eastern townhouse, all you see are four plain walls and a door. That's all you see. Neat and so on, but they're, but they're just rendered and that's it. And then you walk through the door... And there is a garden, there is a courtyard, there is a well or a fountain if it's a reasonably wealthy house. There are the family's uh, uh, living quarters, there's the children running around, there's, there's the place, the quiet arbor where, where uh, mum and dad can relax. All the beauties on the inside. That's the point. And in uh, and, and Muslim culture today... Um, at least I was, uh, I was told. They see that as very important, I was going to say metaphor, but it's more than a metaphor, it's a very important way to order life for a family. Family's not about show on the outside, just as their houses aren't. It's about health and fruitfulness on the inside. So that's the image that we are to have. When, uh, uh, when we read, drink water from your own cistern. Or, um, um, uh, may your fountain be blessed. And the incongruity then of a family that is, that is living in this, this lovely place. Um, uh, you know, letting, the, letting the water flow down the, the, the filthy and litter-strewn streets. What use is that? not least drinking from that water. You might, you might release, in those towns, you might release the water to clean the streets sometimes. You see that in some uh, um, uh, Middle Eastern houses, but not for drinking water. Do you get the picture? I mean, sadly, we've gone for the opposite model, particularly in our culture. I mean, 
I think I've, I've named Hello Magazine before. I confess I have read it on, a, on occasions. Um, uh, it, it is an extraordinary magazine. For instance, you, it's commonly common that you will find them dismiss a failed relationship of some couple that they're uh, photographing and adoring, dismiss a, a previous failed relationship in a couple of sentences. Often, that relationship had an article written about it in Hello! magazine just a couple of months before, but that's dismissed as being sad failure, and here's the perfect life. And it's all show, it's all the perfect house, the uh, manicured um, uh, couple, and so on. It's all about show on the outside, and frankly, you see nothing of the horrors on the inside. You know, Hollywood, Hollywood westerns, um, they used to create whole villages in Hollywood westerns which were really just facades of houses and you walked behind and there was nothing there. That is our modern marriage from beginning to end. A modern marriage is more like a, a Las Vegas casino than, a, than, than one of these Middle Eastern houses. You know, all the glitz and, and show on the outside and you sort of vaguely glimpse inside. There are people who are standing over things who seem to be enjoying themselves and having great fun. And what Las Vegas manages to hide is that actually what those people are doing is being fleeced by others and being left miserable and in poverty because everybody loses their money except for a few. What sort of marriage, what sort of picture of marriage do you want? Plain on the outside and great on the inside or the opposite? That's what he's saying. We're not A-list celebrities. But who wants to be? First look at a marriage and you will see plenty of grumps and grumbles and irritations you know, in, the, in the best of marriages, frankly. But look below. Look a little bit further. And you will see a relationship forged through the hard stuff and the difficult stuff over a long period. You will find mutual support that is uplifting and upbuilding for those people. You, you will find a place where children can grow up secure. You will find a, a life path forged together. And it doesn't look very glamorous very often. And the cracks and the weaknesses are often a bit obvious to start with. But what you see in a good marriage is that actually it's an enclosed garden of beauty and fruitfulness. Private, primarily. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers, verse 17. But greatly fruitful. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. In the immediate context, of course, is may you have children. But Christian marriages... Uh, are fruitful with or without children because they nurture the family of God. And a good marriage is more satisfying than forbidden fruit. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always where you 
ever be intoxicated with her love? Why be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? The word translated uh, breasts there in verse 19 um, could equally well mean breasts or could mean affections. Some people have wondered whether it's an erotic image. May you always enjoy erotic love or whether it's the more settled image of enjoying forever a life that has matured and settled out after the biological inevitabilities have uh, taken their toll into affection. Maybe there is an intentional ambiguity there. May you enjoy your eroticism between you and may you enjoy that affection between you. Why go anywhere else for it, he says. So how should we respond here? Single people, let me say to you, very briefly. Most of you will marry. That's the reality, the statistical reality. You are forging habits and disciplines now which will either stand you in good stead or undermine your future marriage. Learn to treat women as sisters, men as brothers. Learn sexual continence and self-control. It doesn't automatically get better when you marry, you know? particularly with life events like having children, the number of men who leave their wives in the late stages of their pregnancy because they've been denied sex effectively is shocking. Learn those disciplines as a single person. It will stand you in good stead as a married person. And for those... Those who will not marry, and there will perhaps be a few here. This is still a word to you, that it is better to have pure relationships amongst the people of God than to have dalliances or private habits which always twist and distort your relationship with the opposite sex. Single people, this is for you. It really is. But married couples especially, that's who it's mainly speaking to. Listen. Listen to what Proverbs is saying. That inappropriate friendship outside of marriage... Yes, you can justify it with a bit of bluster. It hasn't, after all, developed into a full-blown sexual relationship. But where are you heading? That fantasy that you live with in marriage that always makes you turn with a grumpy uh, uh, thought to your real spouse. Where is that going?
Nowhere in the Bible does it say you must be perfect to come to Jesus. Everywhere in the Bible it says you must listen to Jesus to come to him. And all of us have one really, really important thing to engage with. The greatest love affair for every Christian and on offer to every human being is the love of Jesus. He is the one who gives us that fruitful, satisfied life primarily. The images of marriage in the Old Testament get taken up for the image of Jesus' relationship with his people. And indeed, we find the ability and the capacity to live as God called us to when we find our first love in Jesus. If you've not yet found that, or if that has faded, then the inevitabilities of verses 21, 22, and 23 will take their toll. If you have, then the future's bright for you.